0: It is our joy to ascend once again the glorious peaks of divine revelation as we look into the word of God. And this morning we find ourselves in Matthew chapter 18. So if you will take your Bibles and turn to Matthew 18, the text we examine this morning will be verses 15 through 20. And the fourth part of this series on the children of the kingdom, with the emphasis this morning being on the disciplining of God's children. Beginning in verse 15 of Matthew 18. And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. If he listens to you, you have won your brother. But if he does not listen to you, take one or two more with you. So that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. And if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. Truly, I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if. Two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask. It shall be done for them by my father who is in heaven for where two or three have gathered together in my name. There I am in their midst. It is quite often that people will ask me. What should I look for in a church? People that are moving to other places, people that are living in other areas of the country. And some that even have moved somewhere, maybe in our state. And certainly it's important to look for their doctrinal statement to see if it's accurate, if it's precise, if it's biblical. It's helpful to make sure that the pastor is committed to the word of God and and hopefully is an expositor of the word. It's important that the church be separate from the world and have a passion for God's glory and a passion for holy living. But, folks, frankly, if you want to cut right to the chase, you need to ask if that church disciplines sin. That says it all about a church. Sadly, you won't find many of the features that I just mentioned in many churches, especially the issue of church discipline. And you certainly will not find it in many of the contemporary churches of our day that are seeker sensitive, that are committed to a man-centered theology versus a God-centered theology. It's interesting, maybe you saw it on the news. They had a special on the megachurch and the little subcaption said, numbers don't lie. Of course, I would beg to differ with that. The Lord says there's the few and the many. And the many are on the broad road to destruction. But it says numbers don't lie. And it, it also went on to say they're trading suits for shorts and ritual for rock and roll. And then they had one of the preachers come on and say a little snippets. And he said, it's because we believe in the renegade Jesus. Very sad. But that is the world in which we live. The emphasis today in many so-called churches is purely on God's love at the exclusion of his abhorrence of sin and his judgment of it. Many people have, I think, in their mind's eye, kind of this effeminate Jesus that's a bit of an anti-war peacenik walking around with a candle and a flower versus the Lord Jesus who said, I did not come to bring bring peace, but a sword. Well, as a result of all of this, as a result of a distorted perspective of who Jesus is and who God is, People tend to be tolerant of virtually everything, especially in churches. And, of course, we live in this politically correct environment where we're supposed to be tolerant of everyone and everybody, regardless of what they believe. And so, as a result, even in the churches, we end up tolerating heretics and their errant doctrine because we don't want to appear narrow minded. We end up in the church tolerating false religions because we don't want to be divisive. We end up tolerating women in the pulpits because, after all, we don't want to be considered sexist. We end up tolerating homosexuals as pastors because we don't want to appear to be unloving. And we end up tolerating things like worldliness and immorality, slander, gossip, immodest dress, divisiveness, dishonesty. Lack of submission, rage, you could go on, profanity, blasphemy, drunkenness, marital abuse and every other imaginable sin, all because we don't want to appear judgmental. And the proof text for such absurdity is typically the grossly misinterpreted and misused words of Jesus in Matthew 7, where he said, judge not lest ye be judged. John MacArthur has said, and I quote, the ideas that every person's privacy is essentially to be protected and that each is responsible only to himself have engulfed much of the church under the guise of false love and spurious humility that refuse to hold others to account. Many Christians are as dedicated as some unbelievers to the unbiblical notion of live and let live. He goes on to say the church, however, is not nearly so careful not to gossip about someone sinning as it is not to confront it and call for it to stop. He went on to say, quote, belief in a God who is all love and no wrath, all grace and not justice, all forgiveness and no condemnation is idolatry. Worship of a false God invented by men, and it inevitably leads to universalism. Which, of course, is what many liberal churches have been preaching for generations. By the way, universalism is this idea that everybody's going to go to heaven, doesn't matter what you believe. Salvation, he goes on to say, becomes meaningless because sin that God overlooks does not need to be forgiven. Christ's sacrifice on the cross becomes a travesty because he gave his life for no redemptive purpose. Not only that, but it becomes apologetically impossible to explain the common question about why a loving God allows pain, suffering, disease and tragedy. Removing God's holy hatred of sin emasculates the gospel and hinders rather than helps evangelism. Well, I agree. And certainly this is the truth that we find in scripture, that God is a holy God. And sin is abhorrent to him, and it must not be winked at. And I rejoice that many of you are unwilling to be a part of a church that would wink at sin. And a number of you, I know, when you came to even visit this church, asked that very question. What do you do with sin in the church? Do you deal with it? And certainly the answer is, yes, we do. But unfortunately, there is little concern these days for holy living, Even in the church for purity of life, it's kind of something that is antiquated, that that people don't think about that much. And most Christians measure their holiness against other people. And when you do that, you look pretty good, don't you? After all, I haven't murdered anybody lately. And that's kind of how we think. And very few people in the church, very few Christians are ongoing confessors of sin, as we are told to be in 1 John 1, 9 and other passages. Much less are we truly repentant when we are confronted with sin, whether it be a confrontation through the word of God or through maybe a spouse or a friend or or whatever. And when I say repentance, I'm not referring to some warm, fuzzy sense of, oh, my, I feel bad about what I've done. No, folks, that is not repentance. Biblically, repentance, biblically is a profound grieving and abhorrence within the heart knowing that we have offended a holy God and out of our love for him and out of a fear of divine chastening, we exercise our will and we turn from sin and we turn to God. That's what repentance is. But conforming to his standard of holiness is rather foreign to many people, even within the church. The idea of of submitting to his authority, to submit to his lordship, Is considered passe. We even see this in parenting. Many parents allow their kids to do anything they want. They have what we would call a child centered home. Because after all loving parents should never spank their children. You you, you don't want to be too hard on your children. And yet the word of God says in Proverbs 13, 24. He who spares his rod hates his son. But he who loves him disciplines him. Diligently. Well, folks, whether it's in the family or in society or in the church, instruction without enforcement is idiotic. I mean, you think about it in the family. Mommy says to Johnny, no, no, no. And Johnny keeps right on doing it. And if there's no consequences, what's little Johnny going to do? Exactly. Just kind of ignore mommy in society. If we have laws. And yet there's no punishment. What are people going to do anything they want to do? But yet somehow we're schizophrenic when all of this comes to the church, when it comes to the church, when people violate the clear standards of the word of God. Oh, we just need to kind of pray for them and we need to kind of back off. We don't want to deal with any of this because that certainly wouldn't be Christlike. That wouldn't be loving. And friends, I'm here to say that that is not what Jesus taught. In fact, Peter reminds us in 1 Peter 1.16 of what God has said, that you shall be holy for I am holy, to be utterly separated from sin. And friends, as a church, we are told to be the proclaimer and the protector of divine truth. The church is the most precious assembly on earth because Christ Jesus purchased it with his blood. And therefore, we need to be absolutely concerned about its purity. And it is inconceivable to me that that anyone could read the Bible and somehow conclude that God is not serious about sin and that they could read the, the New Testament and not see how that it is. It is filled with admonitions concerning the purity of the church and our responsibility to deal with sin, with authority, with love, with kindness, but certainly forthrightly. In fact, at the very outset of the church, one of the first scenes in Acts five was the public judgment of two of its first members. If you will remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira, you will recall because of their duplicity where they exaggerated the size of of a donation to appear more generous than they were. Peter confronted them publicly and God killed them on the spot. God is serious about sin, is he not? He's serious about sin in the church. By the way, so much for being seeker sensitive. Imagine what those visitors thought. And the text tells us what they thought when they saw that divine intervention. In Acts 5, verse 11, it says that great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. And it's fascinating. The text goes on to say in verse 13 of Acts 5, none of the rest, referring to the unbelievers, dared to associate with the Christians. However, it goes on to say the people held them in high esteem. In other words, they were afraid. It's like, my goodness, these people are serious about their faith, and the God they serve is serious about sin. And it's sad how many people today look at the church and they do not hold Christians in high esteem. Do you realize that? They do not. Because most people perceive Christians as hypocrites. And you know what? In large measure, they're accurate. Because anymore, anything goes in the church because of the church's misguided attempt to be relevant. The church has widened the gate of the gospel to allow anybody and everybody in to somehow attract the masses. And then once once they come in, they're not taught anything about God's standard for righteous living And when somebody does live in some kind of blatant sin, people just kind of turn their head the other way. Because after all, nobody wants to meddle. And then we claim that we're being loving. Yes, all you need to do, they say, is just believe, just have faith. But repentance is optional. Folks, that's a lie. Jesus came to preach repentance, to turn from sin, to turn to God. Yeah, just just come on into the church. But submitting to Jesus as Lord, well, that's optional. You, you don't, that's not for everybody. Holy living, righteous living. That, that's not for everybody. But Jesus said in Matthew 4, 17, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And in Matthew 9, 13, he said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And again, repentance is an act of the will where we're turning from sin, we're turning to God. And that was the point, even in Acts 5, where God dealt swiftly with sin. Now, some people would say, my goodness, with such fear in the early church, I wonder how, how did it ever survive? Much less flourish. Well, folks, the answer is simply this. True Christians will be genuinely repentant. They will hate sin and they will be committed to self-denial They will mourn over their own sinfulness. Jesus tells us this in in Matthew 5. They will have a hungering and a thirsting for righteousness. And as a result, they're going to be drawn to a true church that hates the sin that they hate. To be in a church other than that is to be like a a fish out of water. Can, Can you imagine sending your children to a school where there's no discipline? In fact, that's why a lot of people are beginning to send their kids to other schools or to homeschool. But yet, can you imagine going to a church where there's no discipline? Folks, I've been in a church like that. And it's not a pretty picture. Well, the church did survive. In fact, it flourished. In Acts chapter 5, verse 14, it says, And all the more believers in the Lord Uh, multitudes of men and women were constantly added to their number. You know, Peter obviously never forgot that day when Ananias and Sapphira were killed on the spot and drug out of the church because later he would write, quoting Psalm 34 in 1 Peter 3.10, Let him who means to love life and see good days refrain his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking guile. And later on in chapter four, verse 17, he said, for it is time for judgment to begin with the household of God. And it begins with us first. Beloved, God is serious about the purity of his church, and we just simply must begin there. By the way, God supernaturally intervened in a similar manner with the grievous sins and the gross immorality at the church in Corinth. For those people who ignored their sin and were therefore treating the, the, the sacrifice of Christ with a, with a calloused indifference when they uh, had the love feast and served communion and so on. We read in 1 Corinthians 1130, 1130 that for this reason, in other words, because of their calloused indifference, for this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. In other words, God killed them. Child of God, please hear me. Although God may not always purge the church of sinners and such with such divine intervention, nonetheless, his attitude towards sin remains the same. And it is our responsibility as we one another, one another, as we function the way we should function within the body of Christ, it is our responsibility to confront sin and to discipline sin when people live in persistent Unrepentance. And because of his great love for us, because he desires to bless us, he wants us to deal with sin in our lives and now catch this in the lives of our brothers and sisters. In Hebrews chapter 12, beginning of verse seven, we read, it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons for what son is there whom his father does not Discipline. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So, my friends, we come this morning to this text, and I want to remind you of the context here. The disciples had been bickering. They were proud and arrogant, trying to decide which one is the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus has now set them down and called a young toddler put it, put this child on his lap to give them an object lesson. He's teaching them about living in the kingdom, how to get along with one another, how to function in the church, in the body of Christ. And this whole theme in Matthew 18, this this great sermon of the Lord. Has to do with the child likeness of the believer. We've already learned that we enter the kingdom as a child. We then learn that we must be protected as children. Then we learned that we must be nurtured as children. And today we will learn that we must be disciplined as children. Next week, we will see that we must be forgiven as children. I've decided to divide this section of scripture into four parts to help you grasp its important truths, because there are really four stages to what we would call church discipline. Now, mind you, it doesn't always have to happen within the church where somehow the pastor and the leaders are involved. Many times it does. But certainly, this process that the Lord gives us is absolutely invaluable as we understand how to conduct this very, very important aspect of body life. Stage one. Notice verse 15. And if your brother sins, go and reprove him in private. This is one on one. Stage one is one on one private confrontation. Jesus is speaking now to all Christians, not just to the pastor. If your brother sins, harmotano is the Greek term, and it has the, the, the idea of, of missing the mark of, of, of God's standards for godly living, found in the Word of God. By the way, you don't go confront somebody when they miss the mark of your own personal preferences. Or when they don't do something that you think that they shouldn't be doing because you don't do it that way. Your standard is relevant. It is absolutely irrelevant. It's God's standard that is important. So we read, in fact, in some very reliable manuscripts, the added phrase sins against you, denoting that it is a personal offense. And since verse 21 here of of Matthew 18, as well as Luke's gospel, both underscore the the idea of forgiveness. That phrase is perfectly acceptable sins against you. That's perfectly acceptable because ultimately all sin, whether it is against you personally or me personally, ultimately it affects all believers, either directly or indirectly, because we're all part of the body of Christ. Indeed, a little leaven, what? It leavens the whole lump. Absolutely. 1 Corinthians five, six, whether it's drunkenness, dishonesty, uh, somebody that's abusive to a spouse, uh, sexual immorality. You know, you got some sluggard that's mooching off of people and won't work or whatever it is that brings dishonor upon the Lord and the whole church body. Now, grammatically, the idea in this text is that we are to go after them immediately. You don't wait around while the wound begins to fester or while you begin to build up some kind of of seething resentment against someone. And as we look at this text and others, we we begin to see that that this is this confrontation needs to be done prayerfully and with love and humility and gentleness with your sole desire to see them repent and be restored back into fellowship, not just with you, not just with other people, but most importantly, with God. It's not to get even. It's not to retaliate. You will recall in Galatians 6, 1, as we discussed last week, Paul says, brethren, if any man is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. I'll remind you again that term restore, keter it, it was a surgical term used to describe the setting of a bone when it is broken. It's also used in other places to describe a sailor outfitting his ship. Even fishermen mending their nets. It's even used to describe someone strengthening another person who is down and out. And so that's what we do. We come and we try to set that bone, so to speak, in the life of an individual who is living in sin. By the way, that text goes on to say, bear one another's burdens and thus fulfill the law of Christ. What is the law of Christ? To love one another. And bearing the burden there is not commiserating with them over some sad situation in their life, but rather getting under their burden of habitual life-dominating sin and discipling them and helping them conquer that sin and gain victory over it. Now, again, you don't hear this very often and people don't like to hear it because we're much more comfortable just living in our own little isolated worlds. We've been taught this erroneous philosophy, even in the church, to just kind of live and let live. And so if you see your brother in sin, you say, oh, we really need to pray for that person. No, you you need to go to that person and say, dear brother, we need to sit down and talk. Jesus is deeply concerned about our spiritual well-being and how we love one another. And that's why he's saying here, if your brother is violating a clear standard of righteousness set forth in Scripture, you go to them. And the verse 15 says, and reprove him in private. No one else needs to know. You don't bring it up in the prayer meeting saying, you know, I need to pray for old so-and-so because they're doing such and such. And I'm going to go talk with them this week. I know that sounds absurd, but I've seen that thing happen before. No one else needs to know. And if he listens to you, you have won your brother. This term, one, is is a refreshing, exciting term. It denotes reclaiming something of great value that was once lost. And, folks, herein is is the purpose of our reproof, the goal of, of discipline. It's restoration. And sometimes it's even salvation. Do you realize how many times, and maybe you have been there as well, where I have confronted somebody in some situation and confronted their sin, and it was obvious that they had nothing to restrain their sin, which was a certain indication that they're unsaved. And as a result of, of that time together, they eventually come to Christ. What an incredible time that is. In James chapter 5, beginning in verse 19, James tells us, My brethren, if any among you strays from the truth, and one turns him back, let him know that he who turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and will cover a multitudes of sins. I know this church family very well. I've been here almost 10 years. I'm very close to virtually all of you. And some of you especially so because I have come to you and lovingly rebuked you in private. And I've seen the wonderful reality of somebody responding to that. And therefore, shall we say winning the brother or the sister, you know, think of your friends, uh, some friend that maybe has lovingly confronted you once upon your parents that confronted you over and over, hopefully, or a spouse. Think of those people who loved you enough to risk your defensive indignation and came to you and gently and with humility called you to repentance because of their love for you. Yes, my friend, I'm saddened by your sin personally or maybe even indirectly, but I care for your spiritual well-being enough that I want to warn you of the inevitable consequences of your sin. Now, you may choose to hate me for the rest of your life, but I'm willing to risk that Because first of all, God has commanded me to go to you and in love, try to help you come back. But also I'm coming to you because I love you and I care about God's consequences. God's chastening in your life, because if you continue in that direction, he will chasten you. And you will forfeit blessing in your life. Now, folks, that adds a whole new meaning to love, does it not? Certainly, we want to see people restored into fellowship. And this is the crucial ministry within the body of Christ, one that is much neglected. And friends, again, may I say that if anyone thinks that somehow this is unkind, it's unloving, it's unbiblical, it's unimportant, or it's just something that pastors and and elders are supposed to do, if that's what you think, all, all, all I know to say is you are simply deceived. You are deceived. How can we call people to genuine repentance and salvation and then remain indifferent to their sin when they live with, with impunity within the church? It's ludicrous. That's not love. You know, out of fear, Peter was prone To sympathize with the Judaizers. We read about this in Galatians 2 and and even in Acts. And and therefore, he was frustrating the the glorious doctrine of salvation by grace. And he was distancing himself from the Gentiles. And so what did Paul do? Did did he just pray for him? No, Galatians 2.11 said that he opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. In other words, he confronted him. And, you know, the good news is Peter confessed his sin and he repented. And later he referred to Paul as his beloved brother. Folks, many times this is this is the Christ honoring outcome. Sometimes it's not. Sometimes people get mad. Sometimes they break fellowship. Sometimes they leave the church or whatever. But it's very important. I really want you to hear this. You never judge the rightness of what you do by the quality of response that it might elicit. Just because you're afraid of what their response is doesn't mean that you shouldn't do it. You you don't fear man, you fear God. And if God says, listen, you've got a brother in sin here. I want you to love him or her enough to go confront that person. Oh, Oh, but God, what if they get mad? What does that have to do with anything? So. It's very important that we do it for the glory of God and realize that God is not finished with them yet. Even if they get mad at you, you've still obeyed God and you let God continue to work with that person. Well, what if they refuse to listen? Well, then we move to stage two. Now the circle of rebuke is slightly widened. Verse 16. But if anyone does not listen to you, take one or two more with you so that by the mouth of two or three witnesses, every fact may be confirmed. Boy, there is such power in this method. I, I, I've seen this over and over. I, when I have had to unfortunately confront other Christians, sometimes even in this church. And I tell them, you know what? Right now it's private. But if you refuse to repent, there are two two or three other people who are going to come back with me. And by the way, you always try to get people that these folks love and respect. In other words, we're going to widen the circle here because we're serious about this. We're serious about your well-being and the glory of God and the purity of the church. Such accountability is a strong deterrent and to temptation and sin. So in stage two of this process, there's, there's really several safeguards that, that are put into place when you have two or three witnesses. Let me give you three of them very quickly. Three essential safeguards with the two or three witnesses. First of all, it confirms the validity of the accusation. Or perhaps disallows it. In other words, by bringing two or three people with you or with uh, whoever the person is that's doing the confronting, you protect against false accusations. My goodness, if I have seen some bizarre accusations before and I've been brought in on them and I think, oh, my goodness, this person doesn't need to be rebuked. You need to be rebuked. And the two or three witnesses is, a, is exactly for that purpose. Many times people have nothing more than wounded pride or 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 somebody has violated their preference or maybe it's just a misunderstanding. By the way, this was set in place in the Mosaic law. God set it in place all the way back in Deuteronomy 19, verse 15. There we read a single witness shall not rise up against a man on account of any iniquity or any sin which he has committed on the evidence of two or three witnesses. A matter shall be confirmed. See, this is a very important aspect of any process of confrontation because it protects innocent parties from being abused by some vindictive slanderer who has a bone to pick. Nobody wants to be falsely accused. By the way, even with elders, pastors, Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, 19, do not receive an accusation against an elder except on the basis of two or three witnesses text goes on to say, but those who continue in sin, in other words, if, in fact, the pastor, the elders are continuing in sin, he says, you are to rebuke them in the presence of all so that the rest also may be fearful of sinning. Well, another essential safeguard, assuming, by the way, that, that, the, that the accusation is valid and the sin has committed, Another essential safeguard of having two or three witnesses is that it confirms the appropriateness of the rebuke. Was it done in humility? Was it done with love? Or was it done in pride and in anger? Was it done in gentleness and forbearance with with a heart of of restoration and forgiveness? Or was it done with brutality? Was it done with a a sense of, of somebody wanting to retaliate? Was the sin properly defined biblically with the fruits of repentance clearly delineated where this person understands here is what you are doing and here's what the word of God says. Here's how you are violating that. Here's are the consequences if you continue in this iniquity. And here's what you need to do to put off and to put on because there is always a two. There's always two factors when it comes to change. You need to stop doing these things and replace them with these things. You see, it's a whole lot more than just coming to somebody and saying, you better quit that. I mean, that's not what it's all about. And so the two or three witnesses help validate those things. On several occasions, I have confronted false teachers even within this church. And it's important that you clearly explain Here's what you're teaching. Here's what you have said. Here's what the word of God says. And inevitably, what I have found, sadly, is that uh, an argument ensues. And so then I need to bring two or three witnesses in and we need to hear it out. And sometimes you confront people on a pattern of divisiveness or other things, but it's always important to have the two or three witnesses to come in to make sure that the rebuke was appropriate, that it was valid, that it was done in love. A third essential reason for having the two or three witnesses is that it confirms the attitude of the sinner. Are they indeed unrepentant? Are they refusing to give up their sin? And if so, now you have not only the one who is confronted but the two or three witnesses. So you have, shall we say, three or four people, all of which love this person who will now move on to the third level, as we will see, and testify against them before the whole church unless they repent. In that case, you give them a warning if they are unrepentant, verse 17, and if he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And this brings us to the third process, the third stage of the process. Now the circle of rebuke has gone from one on one and two or three witnesses. Now it's widened to include the whole church. Now we need more people to pray, to get involved in the process, to help this person be restored back into fellowship, to protect them from the inevitable consequences when they mock God and they begin to reap what they have sown. By the way, at the close of stage two with the two or three witnesses, what we typically do, and this isn't in the scripture, there's no third Timothy that tells you how to do all of these things. But many churches follow this pattern and we have had to do this on a few occasions at the end of the two or three witnesses, when you have an unrepentant person and we've met with this person many times over and over again, over a long period of time, it's a very patient and and heart wrenching process. What we do is we warn them in writing. We document the process, the dates, the names, the accusations, the responses, and now even the time frame before they are going to be announced to the church along with the biblical reasons. And certainly, again, the process must be one that is patient and bathed in prayer and tears. But, folks, it's got to be done at times. You see, An individual living in unrepentant sin must understand that their sin before God is not only foolish because it offends the holiness of God and brings divine chastening upon themselves and forfeits blessing in their life. But also they must understand that this dishonors the Lord God, the Lord of the church. They need to understand that it hinders evangelism because now their testimony is a sham because now their life is telling the whole world that Christ really does not transform lives and that the Holy Spirit really can't restrain sin. And that the father does not really care about sin that much. In fact, he kind of winks at it. But certainly all along as we are in this process, when it, when it does happen... We want to live consistently with the commands in Ephesians 4.32, where God has told us to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving each other, just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Now, by the way, normally when it comes to this particular time of the process of discipline, people have long since left the church. It's really sad. They typically go to another church. By the way, when they do that, I call the other pastor. We pursue them no matter where they go. We keep pursuing them. Now it's the other church's responsibility to do what they need to do with that person. And sadly, most of them don't do anything. But many times people repent more often than not, they repent. And then when they do, we have the joy of coming alongside them and discipling them. And again, nobody else needs to know. We have one on one. Now we've had two or three. They've repented. And now it's just a small group. Some of you have been a part of that group and some of you still are. What a wonderful joy that is. But for those who remain stubbornly recalcitrant, those who persist in unrepentance, we send them a letter and we typically will give them one month to repent. And then on the first of the month at communion, And this always grieves me when I think of it. At that time, we will communicate to the church. At that time, we will tell the church what they have done. We will do it in a general fashion. We will communicate very briefly, very briefly the process. And folks, it's important, we believe, to do it at that time when... It's in a season of worship when we're remembering the inconceivable suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross, where he paid the penalty for the very sin that those people or that person refuses to give up. It's at that time when their name is read publicly with a general summary of the wickedness that they refuse to abandon. And then we also will say, What the final day will be when we will administer the fourth and final stage of discipline, when they will be put out of the fellowship completely. Folks, this is not an easy process. Let me tell you, and anybody that's ever confronted anybody, even if it's a spouse, you know, it's even hard for me to confront my grandbabies. But how much more when you know the conflict that will ensue, because many times that's the case even though we've only had this a few times at, at this church at various levels. some At the first couple of levels, we've had it quite a few times, and every church has. But at levels three and at four, very few times. But I know how difficult it is. I've been threatened with lawsuits. I've been threatened physically. I've been screamed at. I've been spat upon. I've been slandered. I've had my family threatened over the years. It's not it's not easy to do. But you know what? You don't do it because it's easy. You do it because God has commanded us to do it for His glory. That's the primary reason why we're obedient. And because we love someone else enough to do whatever we can to lead them back into fellowship with the Lord. Well, if they remain Persistently unrepentant, verse 17, they're to be treated as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. In other words, they're to be ostracized as total outcasts. This is stage four where they're put out of the fellowship. So we have one on one, then two or three witnesses. Then the third stage is you, you let the church know and the church begins to get involved writing letters and, 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 and coming to their homes and, and praying and, and, and pleading with them to repent. But if they reject all of that, then finally it comes to that time where they're put out of the fellowship. You know, I have never written those letters before without having an absolutely gut-wrenching agony of soul. But folks, that agony absolutely pales in, into, insignific- into insignificance when compared to the pain of having to finally read a name on a communion Sunday and those of you who have experienced this with me know the solemn fear that falls over the assembly at such a time when suddenly the holiness of God takes on a whole new meaning, when suddenly the the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom, grips every heart that's in the room, when suddenly our souls tremble in reverence and at that sacred moment. Every sinner examines his heart in ways that he never has before. And every saint rejoices in the mercy and the grace that the Lord has given him or her. And suddenly, the Lord's command to be holy as I am holy takes on a whole new meaning. But oh, what joy when people repent. And it's been my experience, as well as many other churches, that most people do repent when they receive that letter. They don't want to be exposed publicly. It's hard enough to have the two or three people that they love to come in and confront them. And others repent after the completion of stage three, after their name has been read, when church family members do you know, come and get involved with them and, and, and they turn and they, 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 they turn from their sin. What a wonderful time that is when collectively we as a church call them back to holiness and to fellowship and back into blessing and still others repent even after they've been ostracized from the church. We've seen that even in this church. What a wonderful time that is when we can be like the father of the prodigal son and we can welcome somebody back in with with open arms. It's a great celebration, is it not? Yeah, I mean, you slay the fatted calf. It's a time of great rejoicing. But oh, my friends, what a tragedy for those who remain in their sin. Those who remain, as I say, persistently unrepentant, calloused of heart recalcitrant against the holiness of God. Yes, I've heard, God, what you want me to do, but I'm going to go this way. And if anybody doesn't like it, they can whatever. Well, in stage four, verse 17, you let him be to you as a Gentile and as a tax gatherer. By the way, let him be to you as a command in the original language. It's not a suggestion. The Lord's not saying, you know, folks, here's a good idea. Maybe you ought to. That's not what he's saying. It's a command. Let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax gatherer. In other words, there's no longer to be any fellowship. There's no contact, contact, except to call them back to repentance. Now, they may be a Christian, but they are not to be treated as one because they are not acting as one. Paul told the church in Thessalonica the same thing in second Thessalonians three, six. He said, Now I command you, brethren, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep aloof from every brother who leads an unruly life and not according to the tradition which you received from us. He goes on to say in verse 14, if anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter, take special note of that man and do not associate with him that he may be put to shame. In first Corinthians five, you may recall a man refused to repent of an incestuous relationship with his stepmother. And Paul commanded that he be ostracized from the fellowship because, friends, there is no place for blatant immorality in the body of Christ. That sin becomes a metastasizing corruption that eats away at the whole body and it destroys the testimony of the church. It brings dishonor and reproach upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, therefore, in First Corinthians five, we read Paul telling that church in the name of our Lord Jesus, when you are assembled and I with you in spirit, with the power of our Lord Jesus, I have decided to deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. That his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. In other words, that he might be restored. He goes on to say, your boasting is not good. This idea that somehow you're tolerant of everybody and you're just going to love him through this. That's not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump of dough? Beloved, here's the point. Jesus commands us to all come together when a sinner is living in unrepentant sin and call them to repentance. And if that person persists, we must abandon them to the consequences of their iniquity praying that he, like the prodigal son, will finally sink so low in the quagmire of his evil to begin to eat the husks of his iniquity and get so sick of the stench of his wickedness that finally he's brought to the end of himself and he wants to come back into fellowship with the family of God and certainly with God the Father. In fact, God has made it clear that separation from sinning, Believers is more important than separation from sinning unbelievers. You say, oh, that can't be. Oh, it's it's absolutely true. First Corinthians five, beginning in verse nine. Apostle Paul writes, I wrote you in my letter not to associate with immoral people. I did not at all mean with the immoral people of this world or with the covetous and swindlers or with idolaters, for then you would have to go out of the world. In other words, you know, if I meant people in the world, you just have to, you know, go to heaven because the world is filled with that stuff. It goes on to say, but actually, I wrote to you not to associate with any so-called brother. In other words, a professing Christian. If he should be an immoral person or covetous or an idolater or reveler or drunkard or a swindler. Not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Do you not judge those who who are within the church? And the grammar there indicates, of course you do. And he goes on to say, but those who are outside God judges. So remove the wicked man from among yourselves. You see, again, in stage four, a person is disfellowshipped. But we continue to reach out to them and we call them back to purity of life. And then when they return and occasionally they will, we welcome them back with open arms. We saw this at the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians 2. Remember, there was a man that was ostracized and then he repented. Beginning in verse 5, the Apostle Paul says, sufficient for such a one is this punishment, which was inflicted by the majority So that on the contrary, you should rather forgive and comfort him, lest somehow such a one be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Wherefore, I urge you to reaffirm your love for him. So in these four stages, you have one on one private. Then you still have a private time, but it's expanded a bit with two or three witnesses. Then finally, if they're still unrepentant, you tell the church and you get the church involved in the process. And if they're not going to listen to that. They're to be put out of the church. And then finally, notice in conclusion, Jesus closes this important section on the process of disciplining believers by really confirming the basis of our authority when we conduct this sacred endeavor. Verse 18 says, truly, I say to you, whatever you shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Now, folks, I want to say at the outset, we don't have time to get into this to a great deal, but this has nothing to do with some of the charismatics claim that we can manipulate the will of God to provide for us personal miracles. This is a proof text that many people use for that. Nor does it have anything to do with binding Satan for crying out loud. Nothing to do with that. The context here is the process of discipline. And the grammar makes this very clear grammatically, literally, it could be translated will have been bound and will have been loose. In other words, whatever you shall bind on earth will have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth will have been loosed. Jesus is simply saying this when the church follows this process of discipline, it is conforming to the pattern that he has established and thereby acting consistently with divine revelation, consistently with his will, and according to his authority, and so the Lord is basically saying, Therefore, I fully endorse it. It will have been bound or will have been loosed already in heaven. In other words, we have the authority to tell another believer that their sins are loose. In other words, they're they're forgiven. If, in fact, they are repentant or that they are bound, in other words, unrepentant, if, in fact, they're unrepentant and all of that must be done consistent with the standard of divine revelation. So, in other words, we're acting on on behalf of God, we're acting on uh, as his emissaries here, his instruments of righteousness. And again, such a process of discipline is an extremely serious matter. It must not be conducted apart from the clear standards of divine revelation and under the authority of the head of the church, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. Finally, in verse 19, again, I say to you that if two of you agree, by the way, symphonieo, we get our word symphony from that. In other words, uh, it means to, to produce a sound together. If two of you produce this harmonious sound together about the issue with this sinning brother, If two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. In other words, when the two or three witnesses have confirmed on the basis of the authority of the Word of God, when they've confirmed whatever the matter is about the person's repentance or lack thereof, the Father who is in heaven is in agreement with that duly constituted, organized body of believers. That's what he's saying. There's our authority. And then Jesus adds his confirmation to the process as well. He says in verse twenty, "For where two or three have gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst." By the way, this verse this verse has unfortunately become a common refrain in many prayers lifted up just prior to some sacred gathering, almost as if to say, "Well, thank you, Lord, that that, that since we have a a, a divine forum here, or, or I should say, a divine quorum." Uh, of of two to three, we know that you're going to be in the midst of us. So in other words, let me get this straight. It it takes two or three before he's here, right? You know, I I thought I could be in the depths of the sea and he's going to be there. You see, the point is it has nothing to do with that. It's amazing how these things get started. Somebody prays it and before you know it, somebody else hears it. Then his son hears his daddy do it. And now, generations later, you still have people saying, Lord, we're just so glad to be here today because we know that we're two or three are gathered together in your name. You're going to be there in the midst. And I want to say, who's who's being disciplined here? You know, it has nothing to do with that. What Jesus is simply saying is this. When my witnesses humbly and faithfully apply themselves to this process, Not only does the Father in heaven endorse it, but I endorse their decision as well. Friends, bottom line, it is a glorious privilege to be children of the kingdom of God. But with this privilege comes great responsibility, a responsibility to live righteous, Christ-honoring lives and to maintain purity in the church. May we all be faithful to this end. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these very clear truths that you have given us regarding this whole process of discipline. And Lord, thank you that you love us enough to chasten those that you love. Lord, may we love our brothers and sisters in Christ enough to discipline them as well. And Lord, when it is our turn to hear from someone who has seen some persistent sin in our life, that is bringing dishonor and reproach upon the Lord. Lord, may we have an attitude of humility. May we hear what the sin is and may we repent of it. Lord, I just pray that You will continue to bless this church. Pray that You will keep us united in love together. And Lord, may we be passionate about living lives that are separate from the world, that You might be glorified and that we might be blessed. For it's in the precious and holy name of Jesus that we pray. Amen. We pray you've been edified by this presentation. You've been listening to pastor, Bible teacher, and author David Harrell. For more information, or to order additional tapes or CDs of Pastor Harrell's messages, please visit cbctn.org or call 615-746-0113.